Father, Lord, we're so thankful that we can come here to the gift of your Holy Spirit, Lord. You have enlightened us to your word, to your grace, your mercy. Lord, we're so thankful that we can worship with one another. And I pray, Lord, that as Joey comes and um, teaches your word, Father, that our hearts are opened, that we have softened hearts to you, Lord. And just so thankful, Father, that you've given us this gift of your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. And as you take a seat, just um, a couple of things I want to draw to your attention. Just again, uh, we were a little late being able to get these out to you. Just don't forget to grab a copy of Table Talk magazine for the month of um, November. And so uh, that is a fantastic devotional that's made available to you guys, just one per family that I think you'll be blessed by. And then in the prayer guide, um, I wanted to just make one correction as we're trying to diligently pray uh, for our church family. Uh, Josh, Alyssa, and Gideon, we need to add uh, Maggie, which is their little girl, and Moses, who is getting ready, Lord willing, to make an appearance soon. And so uh, you can jot down Maggie and Moses next to uh, Josh and Alyssa Carr, along with Gideon there uh, as well. if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. The book of 1 Timothy is where we're camped out at presently, and uh, we've kind of been working our way uh, slowly through this first chapter here. Uh, next week, Clark is going to close out the first chapter, um, and we'll continue to move right along. And, uh, and just by way of reminder, the Apostle Paul is the, uh, he is the one that penned this letter to Uh, young Timothy, uh, who was the pastor that he commissioned to pastor over Ephesus, which was uh, a local church uh, that was dysfunctional. Uh, I say this often, not like local churches in our day and age. And uh, and young Timothy was, uh, along with the Ephesian elders that Paul helped to establish at this church upon his leaving of the church, uh, as we see that documented in the book of Acts, they were to guard what the Apostle Paul calls Uh, the good deposit. They were to guard the good deposit, which was the gospel, which meant they had one voice for asserting positively that which has been handed down from the prophets of the Old Testament, which has made uh, clear this mystery that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. They were to assert that positively, and they were to assert that with the voice of uh, of a shepherd guarding from wolves. They were to rebuke false teaching. They were to chase off those false teachers that refuse Uh, to recant and to embrace this message that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And so that's what they've been entrusted with. That's what Paul's reminding Timothy of as he is charged to preach the Word of God. And we're going to this morning look at uh, the Apostle Paul really relishing in uh, Christ Jesus as our sufficient Savior in the way that he uh, he looks back at his testimony and the way that he tells his testimony. And this isn't the only place that the Apostle Paul tells of his testimony, but it's the only place we're going to look at this morning. And my prayer is, is that as we see how Paul uh, tells his testimony, that we will um, allow the, the tone uh, of Paul's testimony to shape the way that we share our stories as well, particularly with Christ. Uh, as the centerpiece. And so I'm going to read starting with verse 12 in chapter 1. I'm going to 
work down to verse 17. Uh, Hopefully you recognize verse 17 as it's our benediction each and every week. Then I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin to work through this text together. And so the Apostle Paul, writing this letter to Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he says this. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to a service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, right? This this would have been something that had already permeated the first century church culture. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Very comforting words here, of whom... I am the foremost. Some of your translations may say, I am the chief of sinners. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so what Paul's saying there, and I'm trying not to give too much commentary right out of the gate, but verse 16, right? I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost. He says, in me as the worst of sinners. I'm the worst sinner that Jesus saved so that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To those who are coming, be encouraged. Christ saved the worst sinner. Verse 17, right? The only reasonable response, praise, adoration, doxology to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, The only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. We, as we stare at your word this morning, I echo what Jen just prayed, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your scripture, that your Holy Spirit would make us receptive to your word, Lord, that that these words would, in fact, get into our bones, God, and that they would change the way that we live, that they would change the way that we worship, that they would change the way that we even tell our story. And we love you. And we thank you. And we praise you for all eternity, Lord, now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're jotting notes, you can take this down. As we're surveying the text, we need to see the shape of a testimony, the shape of a testimony. And everything that I'm going to talk about this morning really is a subset of that one point, the shape of a testimony. And we, we need to see this right out of the gate, that our testimonies, okay, our testimonies as, as, as people have been, who have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, people who have had the righteousness of Christ, this foreign righteousness to us, given to us freely by the power of the Holy Spirit, our testimonies, the testimonies of those people should begin and end with thankfulness and praise to God, right? Our testimonies should begin and end with thankfulness and praise to God. And, and that's what we see here. If, if I were to kind of give us a bookend, if you will, verse the first part of verse 12, look back with me there for a moment. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, 
right? Who is that? I thank him who's given me strength. It's Christ Jesus, right? I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then drop down to verse 17, right? Again, we, we see him, we see Paul after considering his own story and how it intersects with the gospel of God. He goes into what the gospel of God should always do upon our own reflection of it which is, again, praise, adoration, thankfulness. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. How, how the work of redemption intersects with, with, with our lives should always lead us to praise and adoration and fidelity to the one true God. Right to our, our triune God. Right? It should always lead us to glory in the God who accomplished every single bit of our salvation. And he accomplished it according to his own unchanging eternal plan. Right? Paul says he thanks Christ, the giver of strength. And, and, and that word thanks here right, in our passage, as many of you know, maybe you don't you know, you haven't given it a lot of consideration, but when you pray, especially, particularly over a meal, you know this, that word thanks can be translated as grace, can be translated as grace, All right? That's why many of you around the dinner table this Thanksgiving may ask someone to say grace, All right? There's a, a verbal acknowledgement through the means of prayer regarding this unmerited favor that you've received from God. And just this past week, I was on this bulk email chain with, with all these different, uh, the email called it faith leaders in the community. And, and I think that, that that meant that there was probably a wide array of different people from various religious background, backgrounds. But this email was from our mayor, the Newport News Mayor, Mayor uh, McKinley, who uh, we pray for regularly. You see him you know, show up in, in the bulletin. Um, and he wanted us to know that as mayor, he set aside November as a month of thankfulness, a month of gratitude for Newport News. Uh, as he sees it, our society lacks thankfulness, right? And, and I certainly agree that we, we lack that in our society. But the question that I had when I was reading even the email was, how, how do we foster that? Right? How, how do we foster thankfulness in a society that's thank, thankless? Right. How do we have true gratitude? How do we have true thanksgiving? Right. The, the way to foster genuine thanksgiving, right? the way to foster really the, the giving of thanks is through a recognition of grace, right? which is so common, uh, it's so closely connected to that word. Right? That's why it's the whole, the whole point of it. And the, the way that we recognize grace is by seeing it not in a general sense, right? We, we, don't, we, we shouldn't see this at a 30,000-foot level, but we should see in a very particular sense that, that grace is that Christ Jesus died to save sinners, right? And not j- just that Christ Jesus died to save sinners, but that the Holy Spirit of God gave us the righteousness of Christ and reconciled us for all eternity to the Father, right? We, we stand redeemed on no merit of our own, right? Grace is that our triune God freely saved us, and He's still saving His people, 
Right, this is the behind, this is behind the, the, the thankfulness of Paul here in our passage. Paul thanks Christ who strengthens him, the text says, because he's in Christ and Christ is in him. Right? Paul shares union with Jesus and he recognizes the spiritual benefit of that every single day. Right, this is the remedy for a grouchy society. Right, this is the remedy for a grouchy church. This is the remedy for a grouchy Christian. Right? Thanksgiving begins and ends with a gracious God who sought us and saved us in Christ, though we were undeserving. And I think a serious consideration of this, right? Again, if we don't move too quickly past it, if we think of God and His gospel, it can unroot even the deepest pride. Right? It can unroot the, the deepest bitterness in our lives. It can remove, it has the capacity to remove all wrath. It has the capacity to remove all sorts of malice. And and when we think of how closely associated our thankfulness should be with with the grace of God, we also see its its sustainability. This is what we're going to be doing for all eternity. We even kind of sang about it in the the psalm that we just sang again. But we also see our benediction in there, right? Verse 17, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Some translations say to the ages of the ages. Amen. Now, listen, because right? we, we declare this, we say this every single week as we gather here on the Lord's Day. The doxology reminds me of Psalm seventy-four, twelve. The psalmist says, Yet God, my King, is from old, working salvation. Right? And I, when I hear that word working, I think of kneading. I think of leavening the earth. Right? He says, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Right? Paul reflecting on the grace of God in his life Again, he can't help but to worship. That's the only rightful, logical response to considering grace. When we examine ourselves in light of God's Word, every time, it should lead us to worship. Paul says, the king of the ages. The psalmist says, the king from of old. In other words, there's never been a time when our God was not king. There's never been a time when our God was not king. He's king over everything, and he's king over every age. And then we see three adjectives that Paul used in the doxology to praise God. He says, immortal, invisible, the only God. Immortal. Our triune God is indestructible. He's He's not only indestructible, but he's incorruptible. He can't be polluted even by the praises of his people. As sinful as we may be, this side of eternity, he can't be compromised. He can't be defeated in any way. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's not growing. He's not learning. He's this great, as he revealed himself to Moses, he's the great I am. He is who he is. He's invisible. He's the unseen God. He's, he's the consuming fire. He's the one that the seraphim that we see in Isaiah chapter 6 has to shield their eyes from. These unfallen creatures can't even look on His glory. It's the one whose glory can, as we know from the Scriptures, kill a man. Right? We see John 
the appearance of the glorified Christ, he falls at his feet like a dead man. He's the one, this invisible is the one that we know that we're thinking about and pondering a lot more of this Christmas season. He's the one that's made visible in the condescension of Christ, right? In the humanity of Jesus. He's immortal, he's invisible, and he's the only God. He's the only one. He is by himself. There's, there's no one that's like him. He, he's incomparable compared to man's deities, and, he, and he's incomparable and deserving of full worship in light of those endless, lesser, cheap, counterfeit objects of worship that we so easily fall for. Right? He alone is God, and he will share his glory with no one. Our God's not a sharer of his glory. He's the only God. This is the God that Paul worships. This is the God that we worship here at Deer Park Fellowship. This is our God who alone is worthy of worship. And like Paul, when we think of our own testimony, right? when we think of our stories and, and how they intersect with God's redemptive plan for humanity, and when we think about how God in Christ has saved us to the uttermost. How could we do anything but give thanks? Right? We should give thanks. We should say grace. Now let's keep looking because we can continue to see how from, from, from just how Paul gives this testimony, how we should see and, and, and think and even speak uh, of our own testimony so the second thing we think here is we're thinking of the shape of a testimony is a testimony is all about Christ. A testimony is all about Christ. I don't know if you guys have ever been a part of, um, you know, perhaps you've, you've unwittingly shared your testimony in this way or you, you've seen someone give a testimony in this way where they spent about 90% of the testimony talking about all the horrific things that they've been through. And then they kind of slide in that Christ redeemed them from that in the last five minutes of the, you know, Christ in, unintentionally is kind of shared as the footnote of the story, right? Or perhaps you hear a testimony and it's more about this person that introduced them to Christ Jesus than it is about Christ Jesus himself. And that's not what we see here with the Apostle Paul's testimony. We see that this is a testimony from beginning to end all about Christ. Right? And the grace that God brings through Jesus Christ. We see this in verse 12. And we see this in verse 14, verse 15, verse 16. But Paul, he mentions Christ and Lord five times in six verses. And that's not even including the doxology in verse 17 there, even though we know he has our triune God in view when he, when he gives this doxology. And Paul even examines and thinks through his own sins through the lens of the finished work of Jesus. So even when he's talking about his own sin, right, he's looking at it through the empty tomb, right? It's almost like he's, he's peering deep into the, the, uh, the, the tomb, way, way in the back where, where Christ left those sins behind, that's the way that, that Paul seems to be speaking of his sins here. Right? He was formerly, he uses the word formerly, right? He was formerly a blasphemer. He was formerly a persecutor. He was formerly 
an insolent opponent to Christ. Right? That's who he was. Right? At the time of, of writing this letter, that's no longer how he viewed himself, nor did he wallow. We don't get any sense in the New Testament that he wallowed in some sort of defeatist self-pity for these past sins. Right? There, there was no glory in his sin, and he wasn't going to be paralyzed or disqualified um, by those former sins because he had a good, strong biblical doctrine of redemption that those sins were paid for. Right? He detested who he was, but he was careful to think in terms of a former, and he blames Christ for the transformation. Right? He blames Christ for the transformation. Right? Now, is this a testament? Is Paul telling this in such a way that we should walk away thinking that Paul has achieved some sort of sinlessness? No, absolutely not. Right? In fact, it, it would be on the grounds of looking at his sins in light of the finished work of Christ that, that Paul would fight the present struggles and the present sins that he was battling with. And we see him do this elsewhere. We see him talk about his own sins and the sins of others, again, through this lens of the finished work of Jesus, which is that very fuel by which you overcome present sins. It's the very fuel by which you mortify, mortify the, the flesh, this remaining old man, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, we see this. Right? This is the Apostle Paul again writing to the church of Corinth. Do you not know, he says, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Right? We see a list very similar to this in 1 Timothy, right? We've seen that over the last few weeks. And then very beautiful words in Scripture. Verse 11, he goes on, right? Because this is a list given in such a way that none of us are off the hook. We look at this list and we say we're guilty, right? We're guilty. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, right? You were sanctified, you were justified by who? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All right, Paul says this. He says this is the church of Corinth, right? These words are kept pure in all ages. So by the power of the Holy Spirit handing down this pure word to us, he says it to those of you in Christ at Deer Park Fellowship this morning. This is who you were. This is who you were. All right, those beautiful words, and such were some of you, are eternal should be eternally comforting to us. Right? According to Paul, writing the Corinthians at this time, right? Their identity was they were washed ones, right? Their identity was that they were sanctified ones, they were justified ones because of Christ, because the, the Spirit of God applying the finished, sufficient work of Jesus to their lives. I mean, if you know anything about the church of Corinth, and you, you know the, the mess that the church was in, right? We look at um, uh, even the, the beginning part of, of 1 Corinthians, and we kind of see this toleration of, of, uh, of a heinous sin, a, a son sleeping with his dad's wife. 
right? And the, the church was ignoring it, best case. They were dysfunctional. And, and Paul, he's not, he's not going soft on their sin. He, he calls them to repentance. The letter of 1 Corinthians and the letter of 2 Corinthians, it's all about repentance and reconciliation to God. He's calling sin what it is. He's calling sin according to the way, the way that the Scripture defines sin. But he's calling them to repentance by reminding them of who they are in Jesus, right? The, 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 the ground on which they stand on, being justified, being sanctified, right? Being, by God's grace, eventually glorified, right? This, that, is, that is the foundation by which the Apostle Paul calls the church of Corinth to repentance, right? It's, it's as if he's saying, remember who you are. You're beginning to act like who you're not. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember that you're an adopted son or daughter. This is not because you merited this adoption. This is solely because of the grace of God. Repent in light of that because you have the capacity to repent because Jesus Christ upheld the law of God as we looked at last week perfectly. Every jot and tittle of it. He's sufficient. And thinking about your past sins as we see the Apostle Paul doing in our main text this morning, it should make us glory in the greatness of Jesus, shouldn't it? We, we should never get past that. We, that, should, that should never be dull to us. Right? We, we should never grow, grow callous to the greatness of Christ. We sing this song on occasion, but as I was prepping this sermon, I couldn't help but to think of it, right? Our sins, they are many, the song goes, but His mercy is more, right? Our sins are many, but His mercy is more. Our sins are not insignificant. They're not insignificant. They're what the late R.C. Sproul calls cosmic treason, cosmic treason. But Jesus Christ is so much greater and so much more powerful than our treason, in fact, he, he took on our treasonous actions. Right? He became sin, the Bible tells us. Christ endured the cross. Christ went under the very wrath of God for our sin. Right? The, the grace and love of our crucified and dead and buried and risen an ascended Savior is so much greater than our sin. And, th- and that's what we see Paul. That's what we see Paul doing here. And think of your present sin struggles. Okay, th- these are past sin struggles. Right? This is what he's delivered me from. I'm a new creation in Christ, which I think we need to give more attention to in our daily walking with the, the Lord that we're a new creation. But what about those present sins? What about those remaining sins, right? I've kind of mentioned this already, right? Not only are we looking back at what Christ has delivered us and it increases our, uh, our de- should increase our desire to glory in Christ, but again, he, he's, just as he called the, the church of Corinth to repentance, so he applied this to himself with his own sin struggles as well. If you look at Romans chapter 7 quickly with me, I like this because this is a, it's, it's not, I guess you can say it's, it's Paul sharing his testimony a bit even here. 
Romans chapter 7, start with verse 14 going to chapter 8. This is Paul speaking of himself here, okay? We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh sold under sin. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. We talked about that last week, right? So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, right? Paul sees the transgression. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And he's talking about sin as he's talking about flesh, not his physical body. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not uh, do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it, verse 21, to be a law that when I do want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. If that was confusing, go back and read it. The Apostle Paul in this moment of tension, verse 24, wretched man that I am. All right. Who will deliver me from this body of death, is what he asks. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore, right, in light of this, is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right, Paul says that he does the things he doesn't want to do, and he doesn't do the things that he wants to do. Right, how, how can he get out of this without despairing? Right, where does he go from there? He asks a question, and, it, and that question prompts the very remedy that he needs. Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to deliver me? Who's more powerful? Right? Who's worthy to open the scroll? It says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right? And before there were chapters in the Bible, his train of thought would have flowed right into Romans 8, chapter 1, and we wouldn't have given any other consideration. This is just makes sense. There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Paul uses this deliverance that God in Christ has provided for him as the means by which to put even his present deeds to death, right? And so this isn't even something that he's just counseling the church of Corinth, This isn't something that he's just looking back on his former sins, even though he's certainly doing that. This is something that um, at, at the writing of the book of Romans itself, he was this saint who still wrestled this side of eternity with his own sins, and instead of of leading into despair, instead of retreating and having some sort of self-pity party, if you will, he asks a question that he knows the answer to, but his soul needs to hear it washed washed over him again, just like we all need to hear it washed over us this morning, that in Christ Jesus there's no condemnation, and that's the very thing that fuels the present mortification of your sins, those remaining sins in you. Is this a, and I hope we see this, is this a license for us to sin? Of course not. 
All right, he settles that sort of question before he even gets to chapter 7. He answers that question in chapter 6 of uh, verse 1 in the book of Romans. Right? But Paul, he's leaning into this experiential knowledge of the finished work of Christ. He's examining his positional rightness, righteousness before God, uh, and he's doing that uh, as an accelerant, if you will, for the progressive work of God in his life. Right? Christ at the center of the testimony is absolutely crucial. All right? It allows us, again, to look back on those things that Christ died for and praise Him Praise Him and Him alone for deliverance. It allows us to magnify the Lord alone as we share our stories with other people. And it allows us to wrestle with our sin this side of eternity with hope, not despair. Right? Wrestle with our sins this side of eternity with hope, not with despair. Right? Despair practically, and I know that we probably wouldn't ever think of it this way, but, but despair is practically saying that Christ's work isn't sufficient for you, right? That there's something that you can add to help perfect that work when that's not the case at all. And then we see that Christ is the grantor of all things. Okay, Christ at the center of the testimony, right, as we're shaping the testimony here. All right, we see Christ... And again, we, we should see this clearly. He's the grantor of all things. He's the grantor of strength, verse 12. He's the grantor of Paul's calling to ministry, verse 12. He's the grantor of mercy, verses 13 and 16. He's the grantor of grace, verse 14. He's the grantor of faith and love, verse 14. All right, Paul, Paul doesn't assert that he's strong in verse 12. He asserts that Christ is his strength. All right, this, this harmonizes well even with his perspective on either and I'm not quite sure what he's talking about in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but this harmonizes well with his perspective even on the, either the temptations that he struggled with this side of eternity or his physical limitations, that something was weak with his physical body. But 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 10, right, Paul says, "...to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations." A thorn, right? You guys have the thorn in the flesh, right? Paul says, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a message of Satan to harass me, right? He's not calling suffering or wrestling good by any means, right? But he, he again, I, it's important the way that he's looking at this. He says, A messenger of Satan sent to harass me to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Right? There's that word again, grace. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast. This is, this is the result of, of this word from God. I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness. I'm going to brag about it, he says, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, Paul says, then I am strong. And again, we should know, he's not saying he in and of himself is strong. When he's weak, 
The strength of Christ is displayed. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in the passage in 1 Timothy, he can brag about the strength of Christ. He can view Christ as the giver of strength, right? He goes from pride to humility because of the person and work of Jesus. Paul knew that he was a weak and needy man and that the only strength that he could boast of was a foreign strength, just as the only righteousness that he could boast of was a foreign righteousness, the strength and the righteousness of Jesus. But keep looking in verse 12, because we also see even his appointing to his post. The appointing to Paul's post. And if you know anything about his work as an apostle, it was brutal. It was hard. It wasn't safe. Right? His very calling, including all, all the all this persecution and hardship, and he was somehow able to see it as some gift from Jesus. This is why he could be beaten and mocked and abandoned and economically poor. Right? He, he viewed it as a gift from God to be able to labor in this way for the advancement of the cause of Jesus. He viewed it as being identified with a Savior. Again, we shouldn't We shouldn't uh, ask for the suffering to be brought on by any shape, form, or fashion, but his perspective on his suffering was one in which he could say, I'm identified like Christ, and he's advancing his lordship. The, The gospel is going forward. Praise God if this is what I have to go through in order for this to happen. Praise God for it. Right? He says this, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Right, get this, Paul again to the church of Philippi. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth. Right, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I've suffered. I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain. Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, know Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and get this, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The apostle Paul, viewing his story, including his own calling, which was not a calling that when you look at the job description that anyone in their right mind should want, right? He looked at that as this great gain because of this grace of God that he's experienced, this grace of God that he meditates on freely, knowing that it's absolutely, as we're going to see just a minute ago, the, the, the sheer, it's, it's, it's getting what he didn't deserve, right? He deserved wrath. Instead, he got grace and forgiveness. How could he keep quiet about such a message? How could he not joyfully endure hardships? How could he not, upon knowing what his Savior went through, all the way through the cross and his great humiliation, condescending here to earth, how could he not be identified with his Savior and his sufferings so that the gospel of God could be propagated so that we could, thousands of years later, sit in an almost heated room called Deer Park Fellowship and glory in the gospel as well? But we see 
He's thankful for the strength that's given to him by Christ. He's thankful for this calling, this hard, brutal calling right, that Christ gave to him. He's thankful for mercy, according to our text, which is, not getting, again, not getting what we do deserve. Right? What do we all deserve on our best day? Wrath. That's the answer, shorthanded. Wrath is what we, is what we deserve on our best day. Right? Twice, Paul says, I received mercy, verses 13 and 16. Right? He, he received mercy because, according to verse 13, he acted ignorantly based on his unbelief. In other words, his unbelief suppressed what he knew to be true, and he trans, transgressed this law that he had spoken of in the verses prior. And then we see in verse 16, he received mercy as that testimony to the perfect patience of Jesus. Paul himself pinning under the inspiration of, scripture, uh, of the Holy Spirit that he was the worst sinner ever. And Christ gave him grace too, verse 14. Right? The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Right? Grace, the getting of what we don't deserve. So mercy being the thing we do deserve being withheld. Grace, the getting of what we don't deserve. Forgiveness and reconciliation. And we see that mercy and grace had company. Right? Look at verse 14 again. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Right? These aren't things that you acquire outside of Christ. These are things that are found in Christ alone. Right? If you're looking for faith, if you're looking for love, if you're looking for grace, they're found in Christ, which means that we must be in Christ in order to attain them. But what's the, what's the bottom line for us? What's the bottom line for us? How, how can we sum up a grand testimony? What should we walk away with? What should we herald as God's church? It's this. Christ loves saving the worst of sinners. Christ Jesus loves saving the worst of sinners. If you feel like this morning you're the worst of sinners, congratulations, you're not. All right? You're the second worst sinner, perhaps, not the worst sinner. If you have a loved one that's owning that, I'm I'm the worst sinner who's ever lived, and they think that their sin has disqualified them for ever being able to acquire forgiveness, they need to be reminded that Jesus loves saving the worst sinners. That is the reason he came down here, to save sinners. If you're not saved this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't experienced that, Christ wants to save you. He wants to save you. And if you're in Christ this morning, hopefully this morning we see there's no room for pride. We see this all as a a grace, as a gift. But if you're in Christ, it's not because you're, you're good or clever. Right, it's, because that you, it's because you needed to be saved from the penalty and power of your sin. And Christ did that. Right, your, your kids are learning this verse in kids' ministry right now, and we need to absorb this. Luke 19.10, right, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Right, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And so what are a few takeaways for us this morning just as we reflect on Paul's testimony By God's grace, Paul's testimony can be our testimony. The first is this. There's no sin beyond the reach of Jesus. Christ saved the worst of sinners. He can save you. 
There's no sin beyond the reach of Jesus. Christ saved the worst of sinners. He can save you. Secondly, never allow the grief of your past sins prevent you from the joy Christ offers in having your sins forgiven. The accuser wants to paralyze you. Christ wants you to live free. Three, thinking rightly on the person and work of Jesus is the best way to fight the sins you still struggle with. And then four, Christ is the centerpiece of our story. Therefore, tell your story with that in mind. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for Paul's testimony. God, we thank you that you did save him, Lord, to display your, the perfect patience of Christ Jesus and that, Lord, you saved the worst sinner who ever lived. And so certainly you can save us lesser sinners, God. And we are grateful for that. And, and so, Lord, encourage us from your word. Help us to savor Jesus more and more with each passing Lord's Day. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen. This is the portion of our service where we take the Lord's Supper.